so I am very pleased to welcome this morning Michael Parker, um, who, is, uh, who has returned from Spain, um, where he's working with the European Space Agency, um, to talk to you guys about the top 10 ways to die in space. So um, I will uh, hand you over to him. So please welcome Michael Parker. Thank you very much. Um, is this working? Can everyone hear me? Yeah? Okay. Returning from Spain does turn out to have been a terrible mistake. <laughs> <laughs> My wife thinks you're all heroes for making it out here this morning. I think you've just had enough of the winter and you've decided that dying in space is probably preferable. <laughs> so, this is space. Some of you may recognize it. Uh, this is actually a picture of the Hubble Ultra Deep Field. So the Hubble Space Telescope was pointed at a very empty patch of space for a really, really long time. Uh, and it's one of the deepest pictures that we've ever taken of the night sky. So this is a tiny, tiny patch of sky, and it's got about 10,000 galaxies in it. Every point of light you can see here is a galaxy. Um, and there are trillions of stars in each one of them, and each one of those stars can potentially have planets. So there are trillions upon trillions of worlds in this image. And the important thing to realize is that they all hate you. <laughs> Space does not like you. Space is full of very interesting, very exciting ways to permanently inconvenience a human being. Um, it's very important that you don't go there without careful preparation. Uh, and I cannot stress enough that this talk does not count. <laughs> when this finishes, you will not be qualified astronauts and I urge you to not try dying in space at home. <laughs> so, I'm gonna go through in order a few of my favorite ways to die in space. Uh, small confession, I haven't personally tried all of these, um, but I, I've done exhaustive research and I think it's, it's pretty robust science here. So, my 10th most interesting way to die in space is boredom. <laughs> space is just incredibly empty. Most of space has nothing in it, nothing happens ever, it's rubbish. So the nearest star to our sun is Proxima Centauri. It's 4.25 light years away. So it takes you, if you can travel at the speed of light, 4.25 years to get there. The fastest thing that humans have ever built is Voyager 1, which is traveling at about 17 kilometers every second. That would take 74,000 years to get to our nearest star. If you were to go in the fastest car that's ever been launched into space, <laughs> coincidentally the only car that's ever been launched into space, the, the space Tesla, uh, which is going at about 8,000 miles an hour, it would take you 350,000 years to get to Proxima Centauri. Even this spacesuit stuffed with foam would be very bored. But in space terms, Proxima Centauri is right next door. It's really nearby. The nearest galaxy to us, Andromeda, is 2.5 million light years away, nearly a million times further away than the nearest star. So it would take 40 billion years for Voyager 1 or 200 billion years for the Tesla Roadster to reach it. And the universe is only about 13 to 14 billion years old. So you're talking many times more than the age of the universe to travel just to the nearest galaxy. And yet, galaxies aren't sort of evenly distributed through space. We actually live in a, in a part of the universe that's got several galaxies in it. And that's because galaxies are sort of clustered. This is a, a picture of a simulation of, of the universe. And every point of light here that you see is a simulated galaxy. So, all the, all the orange stuff here is threads of galaxies along these filaments throughout the whole universe. And in between them are these huge voids, these big gaps where no galaxies are. And these can be up to a billion light years across. They're incredibly vast spaces. They're the most empty spaces in the universe. Uh, and it would take about 100,000 billion years in the Tesla Roadster, starting from the center of one of these voids, to get to where the edge was when you set off. By the time you got to the edge, it wouldn't be there anymore. It would have expanded beyond the size of the observable universe. So, I cannot stress enough that you shouldn't go there. Um, 
even with Netflix, you're going to be very bored. <laughs> so, something more interesting for the ninth most interesting way to die in space. Regular space. Not super empty space, just regular space. Uh, it turns out that humans didn't evolve to live in a, in a vacuum very well, which was something of a flaw on evolution's part. Um, if you were exposed to the vacuum of space without a spacesuit, you would die pretty quickly. So your first instinct is probably to hold your breath because there's no oxygen. The downside with that is because there's no pressure in space, there's nothing to stop your lungs from inflating like balloons and then bursting, which apparently is bad for humans. Uh, then the, the oxygen and the nitrogen in your blood starts to boil out of it. Uh, the fluid in your eyes would start to boil. Uh, and then you would freeze solid. You'd be dead before you froze solid, obviously. But you would be very well preserved because there's no uh, atmosphere for you to decay in. So you would just float around indefinitely until, I don't know, the next space Tesla crashed into you or something like that. Um, so the, the way astronauts get around this, obviously, is to, is to wear these big pressure suits. Um, but you can't obviously fill up one of these suits at high pressure because then the suit would inflate also like a balloon and astronauts wouldn't be able to bend their arms and legs and would just sort of cartwheel through space, which is not very helpful when you're trying to repair delicate machinery on the space station. So they, they pressurize them to a small fraction of, um, of one atmosphere, one Earth atmosphere, uh, and to avoid the nitrogen in their blood boiling out, they pre-breathe pure oxygen beforehand, so they flush out all the nitrogen, which boils much more easily than oxygen. Um, it does mean that they have to store tanks of highly flammable pure oxygen on, on a confined environment with no escape route, but it's probably fine. <laughs> so, ramping things up a bit from completely empty space and mostly empty space, the eighth most interesting way to die in space is actually going to have some stuff in it. We're going to talk about extreme temperatures now. So space can be very, very cold and very, very hot. There is only a tiny amount of space that is at a, temp is at a temperature which humans can survive. So we're going to talk about the coldest place in the universe first. This is the surface of wherever the universe's biggest black hole is. So black holes have a temperature, um, and that temperature goes inversely with the size of the black hole. So the bigger the black hole, the colder it is. We don't know where the biggest black hole is, but wherever it is, it is the coldest thing in the universe. Uh, and we know this because the late, great Stephen Hawking showed that black holes radiate a tiny amount, a really tiny amount, um, because of a, a weird quantum effect where tiny little pairs of particles pop in and out of existence right near the edge of the black hole. Oh, they do it all through empty space. They pop in and out, and they just cancel each other out all the time, apart from at the edge of a black hole, where one of them can fall in and the other one can escape. And that gives you this tiny, tiny, unobservably small amount of radiation, which means that the black hole surface has a temperature. Now, the second coldest place in the universe is Boulder, Colorado. Um, <laughs> in a lab where researchers have successfully cooled something down to just 0, 0, 0.036 degrees above absolute zero. Um, most of space is just below three degrees above absolute zero. So this is a picture of the, of the cosmic microwave background. So this is the radiation that was formed in the Big Bang. When the universe exploded into being, all the light that was created set off across the universe and it's been slowly cooling down as the universe expanded ever since to the point where it is now just below three degrees. Uh, and you can see here there are red patches and blue patches, and those are the hot and cold bits of the Big Bang. So the, the red bits were slightly denser, and the blue bits were slightly, um, slightly emptier, so they came out colder. Um, and all of it is too cold for humans to live. The hottest place in the universe, I can't tell you about yet, because that would spoil number three. We'll get there eventually. So instead, I'm going to tell you a little bit about how astronauts and space stations control their temperatures. So most of the time, space is really cold. 
unless you're in direct sunlight when it's really hot because there's no atmosphere to shield you from it. So they have to insulate space stations and astronauts very effectively. But that means it's really hard to cool them down again. The heat builds up. Because there's no atmosphere, there's no cold air or anything to take the heat away, you have to rely on the radiation coming from it. So the space station has, I have a laser pointer here, has these radiators on the outside. They pump coolant around the whole station um, and then pump it out to these radiators to dump the heat into space. And if you were an astronaut, you'd need something very similar, such as a water-cooled onesie, which pumps water around the skin and then dumps it into a tank on the back so that they don't overheat while they're floating through space. Now, the seventh most interesting way to die in space is rocks. Rocks are actually very boring. Uh, I apologize to any geologists we may have in the room. They don't move. They're just terrible. But if you put them in space, they suddenly become interesting, like many other things. So by space rocks, I mean things like asteroids, comets, Pluto, the miscellaneous debris that is left over from planet formation before, before proper planets formed. Uh, and they can actually be a, a very effective way of dying when you're not in space, which is why we don't have dinosaurs anymore, uh, because the speed involved is just huge. So a rock that's seven meters across would fit comfortably on this stage, but then it hits the atmosphere because it's traveling at tens of kilometers a second. It has the same energy of an, as an atomic bomb. Now, Something that small is just going to burn up before it hits the surface. But something 10 kilometers across gets through the atmosphere and hits the ground with a billion times the energy of a single atomic bomb. That's what killed the dinosaurs. And that's actually kind of small compared to some of the asteroids we've seen. They can be up to hundreds of kilometers in, a, in diameter, which would make them thousands of times more powerful still, which would really spoil your day. Um, and... Recently, we found, well, I say we, some astronomers found this rock. This is Oumuamua, which is the first interstellar asteroid. So this was traveling so fast that it cannot have come from our own solar system. We know that it had to come from outside the solar system. It flew through, and now it's off again into deep space for millions of years before it runs into the next star. Um, and because it's moving three to four times faster than asteroids that we find naturally in our own solar system, that means if it hit us, it would be about 10 times more explosive. So every asteroid that we have in our solar system could potentially come from, uh, we could potentially have an equivalent one coming from interstellar space three times faster and 10 times more explosively just to make it more dangerous. But actually, when you're in space, more dangerous uh, still are the things called micrometeoroids. So these are just tiny bits of rock, bits of space debris, bits of paint, things that have come off other satellites. Uh, but because they're traveling so fast, tens of kilometers a second, they can drill holes through satellites, through bits of metal, through astronauts. This actual image is one of the, one of the windows on the International Space Station, which got hit by a fleck of paint. And it's cracked this toughened glass. There are multiple layers here, so there is no serious danger, but it's an incredibly dangerous for, uh, they're incredibly dangerous for such a small uh, piece of material. Now, the sixth most interesting way to die in space, stars. I've done some research into stars, and I can conclude that stars are burny. You should not touch them. Um, I'm very professional. So, oops, I've gone too far. This is the sun. Some of you may even have seen it before, those of you who've been outside Cambridge. Um, <laughs> the sun is calm and friendly uh, and doesn't do much that could harm us. Uh, it just sits there. It gives us lovely sunshine, uh, in theory. Um, it lets plants grow, that sort of thing. And in five billion years, it will expand massively and incinerate the entire planet, just for kicks. But the sun, like I said, it's, it's very mild. There are much more dangerous stars out there. So this is a, an actual image of a, of a Wolf Rayet star. So these are huge, dying stars. And as they die, they throw off their outer layers. They fire off the gas into the, 
into the interstellar medium. So everything you can see around here is just the outer layers of the star slamming into the diffuse gas around it. The star itself is just a point in there somewhere. Uh, and they also fire out an enormous amount of radiation, so X-rays and gamma rays. So if, if you were on a planet anywhere near that sort of thing, the atmosphere would be stripped completely off the planet and then you would be slowly incinerated, which would spoil the day. Uh, but stars, man, once you've seen one, you've seen them all, really. They're just sort of twinkly things. So we're going to talk now about planets because planets are actually much more varied. Uh, and that means, because they're more varied, it means that they have more varied ways of killing you. So these are the planets of the solar system. Uh, and I've, I've done a helpful diagram to show you which ones are safe for humans. <laughs> it's, it's not good, to be honest. Um, so starting from the inside next to the sun and working outwards. This is Mercury. This is the smallest, closest to the sun, and worst planet. Uh, it has no atmosphere at all. It has no magnetic field either, so nothing protects it from the glare of the sun. So the side that's facing the sun is extremely hot. It's 700 degrees because it's in direct sunlight. It's really near to the sun, and there's nothing to protect it. The side facing away from the sun has no, no atmosphere. An atmosphere works like a blanket to keep you warm. It keeps the heat in. And because Mercury has no atmosphere, it just re-radiates all that heat straight away, and it drops to 200 degrees below freezing. Technically, this bit around the edge here can have, there is a narrow band that is the right temperature to survive. This bit is actually called the terminator, uh, <laughs> which I think you can tell where I'm going with this. It would kill you as well uh, because it's horribly irradiated. Without an atmosphere and without a magnetic field, there's nothing to shield you from the more dangerous particles that the sun spits out. Uh, so you would get a very bad case of sunburn very quickly. But Mercury is, is kind of nice compared to the next one, which is Venus, the nastiest planet. Uh, it wants to kill you in lots of ways. So Venus has, it does have an atmosphere, so it can keep heat in. It's really good at keeping heat in. It's kept all the heat in. It's 500 degrees. You'd be very quickly incinerated. The other problem, of course, is that the atmosphere is made of sulfuric acid which is not nice. And it has so much atmosphere that it has 92 Earth atmospheres of pressure. So it's 92 times more weight on your body than you would experience on Earth. So you would be crushed to jelly as well. We did once manage to land a probe on the surface of Venus, which lasted for all of five minutes before it dissolved. Uh, in comparison to Venus, Mars is, is almost survivable. It's, it's pretty mild. It's, it, it could once even possibly have supported life. The only problem with it nowadays is that it doesn't have an atmosphere or magnetic field, and it doesn't have liquid water or food. So if, if we do send people to Mars, they won't die instantly. They'll just starve, <laughs> which I guess is better. The, the four giant planets are pretty similar, so we're going to talk about them together. Uh, if you were in a spaceship flying towards them, the first thing that would kill you would be radiation poisoning. They all have very strong magnetic fields, which is good when you're on the planet because it means that all the harmful uh, solar wind is directed away from the planet. But if you're trying to get towards them, then you have to pass through the radiation belts, um, which is really bad for you. Then, once you hit the atmosphere, they're basically just atmosphere, unlike the, the smaller rocky planets. These things just have thousands and thousands of miles of atmosphere, which means that as you get in, it gets very, very dense. If you have a very dense atmosphere, that means there's a lot of friction as you're falling, which means that you would burn up. Uh, and then as, even if you manage to get through that, you have a very robust spaceship. You lined it with lead so you didn't die of radiation poisoning. You would then start to get down deep enough into the planet that the pressure is enough to crush anything we could build into a sort of paste. And then finally, in the core of Jupiter and Saturn is an ocean of liquid metal hydrogen, which only really exists in theory because we can't 
actually build a gas giant in a lab, uh, and it's Im almost impossible to build up to those sorts of pressures and temperatures. But we think that this is what happens when you force hydrogen together densely enough. It becomes a sort of weird liquid metal. Um, and we don't really know what happens if you put a person in it, but <laughs> I'm not volunteering to try it out. Uh, oh dear, how did this get in here? No, 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 no. Um, I'm very sorry, that, that seems to have escaped. Um, now, the fourth most interesting way to die in space is related to planets. It's moons. There are a lot of moons, and when you have a lot of something, that means it, that there are a lot of different ways for it to kill you. So this is Io. This is one of the coolest moons. Io has a twelfth of the surface area of Earth. It's pretty small, but it has a hundred times more volcanoes. It has huge lakes of lava 200 kilometers across, and everywhere that isn't lava is completely frozen solid. It's mostly covered in sulfur dioxide frost, which, again, bad for humans. Uh, this is actually a picture of Io taken on a flyby, and at the top here, you can see this huge plume going about 500 kilometers up into space. Because the planet is so, uh, uh, the moon is so small compared to Earth, the volcanoes, which are similar in power, can shoot things much further up. So if you stood on a volcano on Io, you would fly up into space in incinerated chunks much further than if you did the same thing on Earth, which also not recommended. Uh, this is Titan. Titan is really cool. Titan is the largest moon of Saturn, and it has uh, things that look a lot like lakes and rivers on it. Um, it actually has rain. It looks a lot like Earth. It has things that look like rocks. It has mountains. It has this whole hydrological cycle like we have on Earth. So it looks really nice and welcoming and like somewhere you could live until you realize that the rocks are ice, the mountains are ice, the lakes and the rain are liquid methane, which would freeze you solid within about a minute of you hitting the surface. Uh, going on with the ice theme, this is Enceladus, and it has these huge ice volcanoes on the surface. So the, the surface of the moon is like a crust of ice, solid ice, but it turns out to be over the top of a giant lake of liquid water. Because it's orbiting around a gas giant, uh, it's one of the moons of Saturn, um, the, the gravity of the gas giant is so strong that it squeezes and stretches the moon as it goes around its orbit, and that heats it up from inside. Um, which means that the ice can melt and you can have a sea underneath. Now these giant volcanoes, you can see how big they are because you can see the, the curvature of the moon in the background. Um, we, can, we can look at these and we can actually see signs of complex organic molecules in the plumes from the volcanoes, which means that it's technically possible that there is life in the giant ocean underneath the crust of Enceladus, which potentially means that if you flew there, drilled through the crust, you could be the first person to die by alien space shark. <laughs> now, we're starting to get to the really big stuff now, the good stuff. The third most interesting way to die in space is supernova explosions. So a supernova is what happens when a really, really big star dies. Um, and it is bad news for anything nearby. So when huge stars die, the energy they release is colossal. They outshine whole galaxies. Um, this is a, a picture of the Crab Nebula, um, which is the remnant of a supernova that went off in our galaxy. Um, and when it went off, it was visible during the day. They're so bright. Uh, any supernova within 30 light years of us would um, cause a mass extinction almost instantly because the radiation from it would destroy the ozone layer completely and let in a lot of very harmful radiation from the sun. If the sun went supernova, obviously it can't, it's too small, um, but if it was replaced by a, by a much bigger star somehow and then that went supernova, it would vaporize the whole planet because the amount of energy released is so large. 
so I'm going to talk a little bit about how these things work, because I think it's quite interesting. I, I've just put the periodic table up and said that it's quite interesting, so <laughs> bear with me a little bit. So the way that stars work, stars fuse hydrogen atoms into helium. That's where they get most of their power from. They fuse light elements into heavier elements, and that releases energy. Um, so what a star will do, it will mostly burn hydrogen, it will fuse it into helium. When it starts to run out in the core of hydrogen to burn, it will start fusing hydrogen and helium together, or helium and helium together, to make heavier elements. And it'll work its way up through the, through the periodic table, making heavier and heavier things. A light star will stop somewhere around here when it gets to carbon and oxygen. They're fairly stable. It'll build up a carbon and oxygen core. It'll get stuck. It'll blow off the outer layers, and then it'll just sit there and cool down. Um, but a heavy star can keep going. They can keep going past carbon and oxygen, start to get into the metals, and then they get to iron. Iron is the most stable element. Uh, you can release energy by splitting heavier elements down until you get to iron, and you can release energy by fusing smaller elements together to make heavier things until you get to iron. Which means that in the most massive stars, you burn different elements, you build different things up until you hit to iron get to iron, and then you end up with an iron core in the center of the star, which cannot produce any more heat. When it cannot produce heat anymore, it starts to cool down, because it radiates all the heat out to the rest of the star, which radiates it to space. And as it cools down, it stops holding the star up. So the star is normally supported by the temperature inside it. The hot, um, the hot gas, the hot plasma, supports the pressure of the star against its own gravity. So if you turn off the heat source inside, it starts to collapse. You get a runaway collapse in the outer layers. So the whole star starts shrinking down. Now, that's fine for a little while until it all crashes into itself because there's nowhere for it all to go once it starts shrinking. It shrinks and shrinks and shrinks, and then it crashes into itself. Then that shock heats the whole star. It gets really hot really quickly, and that kicks off nuclear fusion in all these outer layers. So the elements that were made outside the core, which haven't been burned all the way up to iron yet. So instantly, there's a huge explosion. You get runaway nuclear fusion, like a, an atomic bomb, but on the size of a, a star 10 times bigger than our sun. Um, so that immediately blows off all the outer layers of the star. They're either exploding or they're fired into space, probably both. The inner layers get crushed in on themselves so hard that they form new kinds of matter. They either become a neutron star, or if it's a really big star, they're forced in so hard that it makes a black hole. So you end up with about one solar mass, one to 10 solar masses in the core, forced into some weird, bizarre new kind of matter, and the outer 90% of the star explodes across space. So the energy release here is huge. Uh, but we don't actually have to worry about that killing us because these are really big stars. They're really bright. They're really obvious. Uh, we can see them. Anything big enough to actually cause us any problems, we can see, and we know that they're not going to explode anytime soon. The real problem is white dwarf supernovae, which can hide. White dwarfs are tiny little stars, so the, they're sort of the core that's left over from a star that wasn't big enough to go supernova, and they just sit there being small and weedy and slowly cooling down, unless they have a friend. If they have someone to enable them, they can misbehave quite badly, like students. Uh, so this here is a white dwarf, and here's its friend. So it's siphoning matter off, off its friend up until a point. Now, there is a size limit on a white dwarf. There is a very strict size limit, beyond which point they can't support themselves anymore. They're held up by the pressure of the electrons in their own atoms, because electrons don't like sharing space. And when you cram enough matter on there, that overcomes that limit. You hit this size limit, you overcome the pressure limit, the star collapses, and as we just saw, when something collapses, it then gets very, very hot and blows itself to pieces. It's actually quite useful when they're not happening nearby, 
because we know it's such a strict size limit, we know exactly when all these things explode, they all release the exact same amount of energy, which means if you see one somewhere, you know exactly how bright it must be, so you can tell how far away it is by how much light reaches you, which means you can use them to, to measure the expansion of the universe. So this is the distance, and this is the speed of the universe's expansion. So you can measure where all these things are, and you can really accurately track how the universe itself is expanding. So, bigger explosions, always bigger explosions. The second most interesting way to die in space. This is gamma ray bursts. So, these are the most extreme uh, electromagnetic events in the universe. They're generally pretty poorly understood. Uh, we know there are two kinds. There are long gamma ray bursts, which are thought to be produced in really big supernovae, and there are short gamma ray bursts, which are kind of more interesting. We're going to talk about those quite a lot. Um, and we know that both kinds are so bright, we can see them from the really distant universe. We know they're so bright that we must be looking down a sort of jet of radiation rather than uh, uniform emission from them. Because if it was uniform, there would just be too much energy in too small a, small a space. It's just not physically possible for that amount of energy to be confined. So, uh, before I talk about neutron stars and how they produce gamma ray bursts, I have to talk about dense things. <laughs> yeah, you thought you'd escaped him for a morning. He's everywhere. So, dense things. This is water. Uh, you get quite a lot of it around here. It's useful. It weighs about 1,000 kilograms per cubic meter, which is a nice, useful density. I can hold water. It doesn't rip my arm off and smash through the floor. This is Earth. Obviously, I can't hold the whole Earth, but if I had a glass of it, I would also be fine. Earth, on average, weighs about 5,000 kilograms per cubic meter. That's about the density of your average rock. The densest naturally occurring element is osmium, which I looked up the other day. Turns out to be very interesting. I'd recommend it for a Wikipedia browse sometime. And that weighs about 23,000 kilograms per cubic meter. Uh, which is pretty heavy. You wouldn't, you wouldn't be comfortable carrying a brick of it around, but it's nothing special. A white dwarf, uh, like we just talked about, weighs a billion kilograms per cubic meter. So one teaspoonful of a white dwarf would weigh five tons. It's going to do some serious damage to your teaspoon and your floor. But actually... That's not actually that dense compared to a neutron star. So if you take a white dwarf, it's held up by the electrons in the atoms in, in the matter making it up. Now, if you cram enough stuff on, if you push hard enough, those electrons merge with the protons in the nuclei of the atoms. And suddenly you end up with something that is mostly made of neutrons. Neutrons can get much closer together. You end up with something that, rather than being as dense as an atom, is as dense as an atomic nucleus. So a neutron star weighs a billion billion kilograms per cubic meter. So a teaspoonful would be 5,000 billion tons, which isn't just going to do damage to your floor. It's going to do serious damage to the country that you're holding it in. <laughs> so you can imagine what happens if you slam two of these things together. What they, what they do is, if you have a pair of them orbiting each other, they stretch space-time so much that they cause ripples in it, which looks absolutely nothing like this, but it's really hard to draw, so this is the best you're going to get. It stretches and contracts space, and that allows them to slowly lose energy. So they slow down, they spiral in together, they get closer and closer together, and then they... A bit like water going down a plug hole, but much more explodey. They get really, really fast towards the end, and then they slam into each other. And we can see this. We can see this in two ways. Firstly, we can see the gravitational wave. Well, C is a long term, but we can detect the gravitational wave that they emit as of about two years ago. Um, and if we're very, very lucky, we can see the ensuing explosion. So this is the the signal from the, the gravitational waves from the first observed neutron star merger last year. Um, and this is, this is basically the sound that it made as they, as they slammed together. 
Uh, and I'm going to do an impression of it. I, I'm not sure how accurate it is, but I think it goes something like, and then there's an enormous bang. So this is the, is the galaxy that we think it happened in, and this yellow dot right here is the kilonova that followed the neutron star merger. So these two things slammed into each other, uh, and then a, a really powerful explosion was launched, and then a beam of matter and radiation gets fired out along the, along the axis that they're rotating around. Um, and the, the, we, the reason we can see these from so far away is that we're looking down the jet. It's like looking down the, the beam of a lighthouse or something like that. And if you were un unfortunate enough to be on a planet in that beam, both you and the planet you were standing on would be just plasma in seconds. Now, we've been getting steadily more extreme. We've got to the most interesting way to die in space, which is spaghettification. <laughs> this is a real word. I didn't make it up. <laughs> This is what happens when someone falls into a black hole. Uh, but we're not going to use just anyone for this demonstration. We're going to use Dwayne The Rock Johnson. Uh, I have no particular vendetta against Dwayne The Rock Johnson. Uh, and if you know him, please don't tell him about this, because he's a lot bigger than me. He's just almost exactly two meters tall, so it makes the maths much easier. Uh, so we're going to throw Dwayne The Rock Johnson into a black hole to see what happens. Um, and <laughs> it actually depends on the size of the black hole that you use. So if there are two kinds. There are supermassive black holes, like this one, and there are stellar mass black holes, like this one. So supermassive black holes live in the centers of galaxies, and stellar mass black holes uh, are formed in supernova explosions and live all throughout galaxies. So there are several in our own galaxy. They're all over the place. Um, and as you... As you fall towards a supermassive black hole, assuming that there's no uh, matter surrounding it and it's just sitting there in space, you're actually fine. The difference on the gravitational pull between your head and your feet is very small because it's so big that you can't get very close to the, to the singularity. But with a stellar mass black hole, the difference in, in gravitational pull between your head and your feet is very, very large, which has fairly serious consequences for Duane. So starting from the outside and working in, 11 million kilometers from the black hole, we're going to use something about 10 solar masses in size, um, which would fit comfortably inside the M25. So you're talking 10 times the mass of the sun and the size of greater London. 11 million kilometers away, Duane is experiencing 1G, one Earth gravity of acceleration, the same that you're all feeling right now. Uh, and none of you, I think, have died. So he's fine. He's doing great. He's happy. Uh, but it's going to get worse quickly. Four million kilometers away, he's experiencing 7G. This is the same that astronauts go through on reentry. This is seriously bad for you. Duane is probably blacking out about this point, uh, as most astronauts do during reentry. A million kilometers from the black hole, he's experiencing 100G. This is the most that a human being has ever survived, and that was only for, an only for an instant on something called a rocket sled, which <laughs> they sound fantastic. I can't find footage of one, otherwise it would be here, but in my head, they're brilliant. Uh, 2,500 kilometers from the black hole, the rock's feet have come off. The difference in the gravitational pull between his feet and his head is now so much that the tension in his own body is enough to split the bones in his legs, even his extremely strong rock legs. Uh, I'm probably on some kind of government watch list for the amount of time I spent looking up the breaking points of humans. Um, so if the police show up, tell them it was for science. He's now on 20 million G, which is an unfathomably large number. But, you know, he's achieved. So, good work, Dwayne. 15 kilometers from the black hole, 
His feet have already gone. They've passed through the event horizon. His head's still out here. Uh, light is traveling in circles. The, the sort of stream of molecules that used to be Dwayne could, if he still had eyeballs that weren't kilometers long, see the back of his own head. It's because the gravity is so strong here that the light can actually orbit the black hole. That's what causes these cool ringing features that you see in the, in the picture. It's light being bent around the black hole. And then finally, as the Dwayne spaghetti hits the edge of the black hole, he seems to freeze in time for those of us watching him from outside. So there would be a little bit of Dwayne just frozen on the edge of the black hole for all eternity. Thanks, Dwayne. Um, and thank you all for coming along on this horrible morning. Uh, one last time, do not try this at home. Thank you. Thank you very much. It's cube time. It is. Um, thank you, Michael. Um, does anyone have any questions? Let's start down the front. Okay. Um, can I ask two? Of course. Um, okay, so um, what's the longest time you could survive in space without a spacesuit? Um, I think it's, it's a, about a minute before the, the damage starts to be done to the cells in your body and the, the blood vessels and that sort of thing. Um, if you try and hold your breath, it is not long. You pass out in about 10 seconds if you don't hold your breath. Uh, if you hold your breath, you burst. Uh, if you don't hold your breath, you get 10 seconds before you pass out, and then about a minute or two before the damage is irreparable and you're definitely dead. Um, and also, you said that we would definitely die on Mars, but what about Elon Musk's plan to nuke Mars um, and <laughs> change the atmosphere? Um, so, Mars needs work. It's, it's like renovating a house or something. There's, there's no reason it couldn't support Mars couldn't support life. Uh, you have to dig under the surface to shield you from solar radiation and that sort of thing, and you have to start growing plants and producing oxygen and water there. So as it is now, you definitely die. Um, probably the first people that Elon Musk crashes into Mars, they'll die too. Uh, but eventually, there's no reason it couldn't be habitable, yeah. Um, if you keep your hands up, and we'll, I'll try and get a couple of mics out whilst we're this one first. Um, What's an event horizon? So the event, it's a silly technical word. Uh, it's the, the very edge of the black hole. It's the sort of the limit where the speed of light uh, is no longer enough to escape. So everything with mass has an escape velocity. It's the speed you need to reach to escape from the gravitational pull of that thing. So I have an escape velocity. But I'm not very fat, so you don't need to run very fast to escape me. Um, a blue whale is quite heavy. Still, you only need to be moving at a tiny, tiny speed to escape. But something like the moon has an escape velocity, which is uh, a few kilometers a second, something like that. So you, you, you need a rocket to get off the ground. But it's, it's easier than, say, the Earth, which is bigger still. The sun is bigger still. And eventually, you get to the point where the speed of, you have to be traveling at the speed of light in order to escape. Um, and beyond that point, nothing at all can escape. So the, the event horizon is that sort of imaginary line where nothing can escape from inside the black hole. There's no actual hard surface or boundary there. It's just once you've passed that point, you can't see in or out. How thick are spacesuits? Could you repeat that, please? How thick are spacesuits? How thick are spacesuits? So they have lots and lots of layers in them. So they're the outer bit. In total, it's probably two or three inches thick, um, depending on, on the actual design of suits. So you have like a water-cooled layer, and then you have like a, a fluffy insulating layer. Uh, you have layers to shield you from the sun. The, the outside is usually painted white so that you reflect off all the sunlight and that sort of thing. So they're pretty thick, but similar to old-fashioned diving suits. They're thick enough to protect you, but not so thick that you can't move around. Cool. Uh, over this side. How many volcanoes are on 
ire. Is it ire? Um. <laughs> so there are, I don't know the number, to be honest. Uh, I don't know how many volcanoes there are anywhere, really. Lots. <laughs> there are lots of volcanoes. How many moons have volcanoes on? Uh, not that many. I, again, I don't know the exact number, but only a, only a handful of them. It depends if you count the ones that have sort of ice volcanoes. So there are only, I think, three or four moons that have sort of molten rock kind of volcanoes like we have on Earth. Um, but there are several other ice moons that have these lakes, or oh, seas underneath the surface, which acts in a similar way to the molten rock on the Earth. Way up at the back here. Um, it, you know there are lakes in the middle of the giant planets of liquid hydrogen. If you want to know what they're like, why don't you just compress it in a lab? Because it's really difficult to get those kind of pressures in a lab. Um, it's just con like confining that amount of pressure is really difficult because if, like, if you put it in a reinforced box, you're just going to blow up the box. Um, the only place we know of where this occurs is inside giant planets. So if we could build a giant planet in a lab, that would work. But to actually generate those pressures in a, in a controlled way without just blowing something up is really difficult. When, uh, when you're getting sucked into a black hole, how long will it take from the beginning to the end? Oh, I should know this one. I did know this one. Um, so it, it depends how far out you start, but it accelerates very quickly once you, once you get... Um, once you start to get close because the gravity is so strong. Um, so I think from the point where it starts to feel weird to the point where you hit the edge and are gone forever, you're talking a few minutes. Um, you could start off really far away and then you could be falling for hours or days or something. But once you start to, once you start to get stretched, it's over very quickly. Over here. Uh, how cold is it um, um, uh, under the eventorism, under black hole? Is that what it's called? The surface of a black hole. Under the surface of a black hole, how cold is it? We don't know. We have no idea what happens inside a black hole. So it could, there could be some new exotic kind of matter that we don't know about that hides in there uh, and is really hot. Or it could be really, really cold, there could be some new weird physics inside. The truth is we don't know, because we can't see in. No, no information can get out of the black hole, so we have no idea what happens inside. Um, how is a neutron star formed? So a neutron star is usually formed when you have a, a star that's really big, but not super big. So it has to be big enough to go supernova. And then the explosion in the, in the sort of middle of the star forces the core in on itself. So the pressure is so high that it forces the electrons and the protons together, and you just end up with solid neutrons. If you have too big of a star, then the pressure is so much that even the neutrons can't support it, and it collapses to a black hole. So you want some, you need the sort of a Goldilocks star, not too big, not too small, um, and then you can, you can get just the right explosion to leave a neutron star behind. Uh, over here on this side. About how far away from a black hole would time stop? So time slows down for someone looking in right up until the point where you hit the edge, this, this event horizon, the point where the speed of light becomes, is, is no longer enough to escape, time stops exactly there. So when I said you'd see a, a frozen image of Dwayne forever, 
actually you'd see a sort of frozen image of a pancaked Dwayne as every bit of Dwayne hit the, hit the edge. So you don't get one nice picture. Um, but yeah, it's exactly on the edge. Uh, get ready, I've got a hard question. Um, <laughs> so if you had the right conditions, it's, I'm sure it's Im absolutely impossible to have these conditions, but theoretically, if you had a planet or something um, with a mass and a gravitational field strong enough and no friction for, well, no atmosphere for long enough, could, um, if you fell into that planet, would you would gravitational acceleration bring you to the speed of light? And if so, would you get to infinite mass? No. <laughs> so you would, you would approach it. Um, but because, because you would get to infinite mass if you did get to the speed of light, you can never quite hit it. Like the, the energy needed for every extra tiny, tiny bit as you get closer to the speed of light is much more than you needed before. So you would need an infinite amount of energy to accelerate something to the speed of light. It's a good way of trying, though, something very heavy. Well, I think we'll do the last sort of three questions now. So the next one's here. Um, so I've got a theory um, about how, what the temperature at the center of the black hole would be, because if you're at absolute zero, nothing's moving, and the gravity at the center would be so strong that you wouldn't be able to move from the center at all. So wouldn't it be absolute zero? Could be. That, that does make sense. Um, that is as good as any other theory I've ever heard. Um, <laughs> yes, I, technically, if nothing can move at all, then it must be at absolute zero, and that might be, that might be the correct answer. It's very difficult to test, though. Uh, as Neptune and Uranus are both covered in methane gas, why is Neptune a lot darker than Uranus? I don't know. Um, good question. I can look that up for you, but I don't know the answer. <laughs> How big does a star have to be to become a supernova? So it's about 10 solar masses, so 10 times the mass of the sun that you need before you start getting supernovas. Uh, there's a wide, there are a lot of stars that are much bigger than that. So there are stars up to hundreds, thousands of times the mass of the sun. But the, the basic lower limit is 10 times the mass of the sun, approximately. Cool, thank you very much. I think we'll stop the questions here. Um, I know a lot of you still have them. Uh, you are welcome to wait outside in the foyer and Michael will answer them on his way out. But um, yeah, one more round of applause for Michael and I think Dwayne as well.